I don't know if you remember the uh, television programme, A Question of Sport. You remember that? Um, it's about to change presenters. After all the years, I think Sue Barker's decided to retire, and we're all a little bit upset. Um, I'm not interested in sport, really, but there is one round I used to love in that, and that's the What Happens Next round, you know, where they showed you a little bit of film, and then it suddenly stopped, and you had to work out how many ducks came onto the football pitch or, you know, all the strange things that happen. Well... Our reading today is a bit of a what happened next part of the Bible. We often get to the feeding of the 5,000 and then we stop and we don't really delve further. But we're going to look at the bit that happened next. Now every morning I am woken during the week by the Today programme. I don't like being sung at in the morning. So it's Radio 4 in bed and then later on it's other things to listen to. But they're often interviewing politicians on there, aren't they? You've probably heard it. It's quite frustrating. And Gillian and I almost end up laughing sometimes because politicians are renowned for not answering the questions, for batting away the tricky topics, and instead they answer the question that they would rather they had been asked. Like, why are you so brilliant? Or something like that. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is like a politician, or indeed that Jesus ever tried to avoid tricky questions or cover up things that he'd rather people didn't know. But in our reading today, his response to a question does seem a little bit evasive. Or perhaps his response is more insightful and important. Following that feeding of the 5,000 plus people, the disciples headed off by boat to the far side of Lake Galilee for a well-earned break. They'd been busy folk and they needed a break. I'm looking forward to the end of my break that seems to have gone on for 18 months, but you know, a busy time they'd had. And John tells us, that knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He didn't want to fall into their plan, which wasn't God's plan. He stepped aside. And the disciples headed off by boat. And the people there would have seen the disciples depart in a boat. And maybe and probably noticed that Jesus wasn't with them when they left. So now the crowd have pursued the disciples' boat around the outside of the lake. I think that's a lovely image, isn't it? They go across the lake and all the, everyone else runs around the outside. And when they get to Capernaum, the people there had noticed that there's only one boat. But Jesus was now with the disciples, but he hadn't been on the boat when it had left. So they're a little bit puzzled and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's a, a perfectly accurate answer to that question. Would have been something along the lines of, I walked over the Sea of Galilee in the night time to help my disciples, then I miraculously transported our boat across the remaining distance of the lake. That's when, and indeed how, I came to be here. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead of telling them when and why he came, Jesus told them why they had come. He answers a question that they actually need to hear the answer of. It's quite simple because they wanted more food miraculously provided by Jesus. Often 
we can learn more from understanding the reason that we ask God a question than from the answer to the question itself. Why, what was it that motivates me, God, to ask you this question? And this was the case for those who followed Jesus around Galilee. They asked the question. He says, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I can sort of relate to them, actually, because if somebody gave me some lovely free food, I'd probably want to, you know, be their friend for quite a long time. They came seeking Jesus. Yes, they did. They wanted something from Jesus. Indeed, it was a desire for something that Jesus could provide for them that led them there. But it wasn't the right reason. And Jesus highlights this very clearly in his response. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, when I was um, a teacher in a school, rather than the other sorts of teachers that we have, when I was a teacher in school, there was one surefire way to get everyone's attention and get everyone in the classroom to stop what they were doing and listen very closely to what was happening. And that was to tell someone off. Especially if you chose to tell someone off who wasn't normally the one who got into trouble. I even remember when I was at secondary school myself that there were days when we had a particular English teacher who taught along the main corridor of the school and he would be um, teaching quite happily and then suddenly would go off into an enormously shouty, loud rant and our English teacher would stop the lesson, open the classroom door and we'd all listen in. And we were highly entertained by it. And of course it is highly entertaining, of course, unless you're the one on the receiving end. I guess there's that certain sort of smug delight, isn't there, in watching or hearing someone else get into trouble, knowing that you had nothing to do with it. It could be a mixture of what's known as schadenfreude, a delight in the misfortune of others, and a sense of relief that you aren't yourself in trouble. So when we hear of the misguided longings of the people who came to Jesus on that lakeside, seeking bread, and as onlookers we might feel rather smug and self-satisfied that we aren't implicated in that mistake. Well, we so readily come to Jesus, don't we, with very specific ideas of what we want or expect from Jesus which may not be in tune with God's will. It's a tough thing to learn. Sometimes we have such strong expectations of what God should do in tackling our particular need or our particular longing that's there within us that we miss what God actually does and we aren't satisfied with God's answer to our prayer. A man died and went to heaven. 
it's a, it's a classic story, because he arrives at the pearly gates, and of course he meets St. Peter there with the keys. And St. Peter welcomes him with open arms and takes him in. He said, before you settle in, we're going to show you around. And he showed him all around the wonders of heaven, the gardens, the fountains, the throne of God itself. It was just breathtaking. And it was more stunning than even, even he had been able to imagine until that point. And finally, it came the point where he was going to be taken to his own special accommodation his own space, his own room or mansion that God had set aside for him. It was a beautiful place. And he, and he arrived and he was just so moved to see what God had prepared for him. And there, at the end of this space, this I don't know what it was, a cloud, I don't know, was a huge pile of presents. And the man's heart lit up like a child on Christmas morning. Coming downstairs, a huge pile. He said, wow, you even get presents in heaven. What are they? And St. Peter said, well, those are answers to prayer. They're answers to prayer that God gave you in your lifetime, but that you did not receive, that you did not accept, that you did not take from God. Hmm, said the chap, can I open them now? What would be the point? Said St. Peter. They're of no use to you here. When our expectations prevent us from seeing what God is doing in answering our prayers, we need to change our focus and, and hone in on something else. And the next interaction in our reading points us further towards the thrust of what Jesus is saying. The people ask, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answers, the work of God is this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. It's a fairly straightforward answer, and from our perspective here and now, with the advantage of already knowing the remainder of the conversation, we understand that Jesus is talking about himself. But they didn't really get, get what he was saying either. The people began to show some understanding that perhaps Jesus is talking about himself. But now they demand a sign, as if Jesus, having already fed over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish was not enough. Give us a sign. Moses gave us bread from heaven, so we know he was God's servants. servant. What about you? What are you going to do? And again, it would be easy for us to offer a wry smile and raise our eyebrows at the lack of faith we see in this demand for further evidence, further confirmation of who Jesus was. But we still have our doubts. We pray in faith, but we may have a degree of uncertainty. There's nothing wrong with that. We may believe with our heads, but struggle to hold in our hearts that Jesus can do anything. 
That no problem is too big or too small. And yet, perhaps, despite all we've seen in Scripture, in history, and in our lives, and the lives of those around them, we still find it difficult to accept who Jesus really is. Maybe this problem, maybe my problem is too big or too small. And I'd like some reassurance that God is God. That God is there, even, and that you and I really can trust God to give the satisfaction that we crave. Of course, it wasn't Moses that gave the manna to the people, it was God. Manna, like Pringles, doesn't satisfy forever. It filled the stomach for the day and it nourished the people, but the next day, the sending and the gathering had to happen all over again, day after day, with only the Sabbath day off. Jesus, again, points above and beyond. For the bread of life is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's again pointing to himself. And they missed that too. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. They're still focused on what they want to get out of this encounter. Their particular expectation of what Jesus ought to do. Were they perhaps expecting an endless supply of food? And even that would not be enough to fully satisfy So Jesus speaks the truth plainly. He declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He lays the truth down there on the line, doesn't he? An unavoidable statement that he himself, Jesus Christ, is the bread of life. And what's more, bread that satisfies forever. It may seem obvious, because of course Jesus gives life. Of course Jesus satisfies. But we still may struggle to shift from head to heart in our understanding of that. I've led many school assemblies. Some um, by the skin of my teeth, I'd say. I used to do what they called threshold planning, which is as you pass the threshold into the assembly hall, you start to think about what it is you're going to say or do that morning. But there is a bit of a mini joke that goes around about school assemblies, and that indeed goes around about children's responses in church. And this is it, that whatever you ask, someone will always suggest that the answer might be Jesus. Whatever the question is, it seems that for some folk, particularly children who might be a bit nervous about getting it wrong, that it's always worth trying Jesus out as a possible response. Because so often, of course, it's right. But Jesus' words today point squarely to the fact that whatever our longings, desires or needs, whatever we may have in our lives... Jesus 
is the answer. It doesn't mean that we can get whatever we want from Jesus, like some sort of passive vending machine. Jesus is the answer, the first and the only satisfying solution in all creation, in all the world, in all time and in all history. The solution ultimately to sickness and disease isn't healing, it's Jesus. The solution to hunger and poverty isn't food and wealth, it's Jesus. The solution to sin and death is not righteousness and the prolonging of life, it's Jesus. And the list goes on. The fact that from God's perspective, Jesus does bring healing, richness, righteousness and life in his eternal kingdom is a wonder of God's mercy and grace that we can all cling to. Grace which is sufficient to satisfy all human longings. Maybe not in the way that we might expect. Here and now. But as God has planned since before creation, real life, full life, joyful and abundant life, which ultimately satisfies, comes only through and with Jesus Christ, a life in full relationship with God. I love this name, Augustine of Hippo. Don't you think that's a wonderful name? I ought to move somewhere so I could have an interesting name. But, um, you know, Adam of Crowborough doesn't really fulfil the, um, the role, does it? Augustine of Hippo said this, famously said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Only in God, through Jesus Christ, are all the things answered. Only in God, through Jesus Christ, do we find satisfaction. And it's not in a glib or a throwaway sense, but in a real and eternal sense. Jesus is the answer. Humanity can and will only find true satisfaction in Jesus Christ, the bread of life, in whom no one will ultimately go hungry or thirst, physically, mentally, or spiritually. So let's take that with us today. Whatever we may face, let's come to Jesus, for he is the answer. Let's proclaim, let's share, let's live our lives in faith in the answer, Jesus Christ, for a world which is longing for satisfaction. Only he can provide that need.